Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dick Family Basement. On this Monday, as we go over the Vatican II documents, thank you for all that are joining here live in, I guess, in person, and thank you for all those who download these episodes throughout the weeks. Before we get started, let us pray the St. Thomas Prayer before study. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Amen. Creator of all things, true source of light and wisdom, lofty origin of all being, graciously let a ray of your brilliance penetrate into the darkness of my understanding and take from me the double darkness in which I've been born, an obscurity of both sin and ignorance. Give me a sharp sense of understanding, a retentive memory, and the ability to grasp things correctly and fundamentally. Grant me the talent of being exact in my explanations and the ability to express myself with thoroughness and charm. Point out the beginning, direct the progress, and help in completion through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know why my links are not working in the chat. You might have to copy and paste or come up come on down to intheredeemer.com and click on the Vatican II study. I have the link to the shared document. And I encourage you to go and look at the shared document and make your own notes and everything else. One thing today I want to just mention before we get started here is that in our shared document, if you scroll down, so it's all the different meetings and stuff like this, it has all the different notes and everything else. But on today's agenda and stuff like this, we're going to finish off the dogmatic constitution on the church. We're going to finish that off with the Marian uh, portion of it. And then we'll probably start today the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. And I have some really good links uh, to that, some really good summaries and stuff like this and study guides. So if you're very much interested in this particular document, I encourage you to check those out. So as always, where can I buy Early Times Kentucky Whiskey? I'm just going to put that out there until I get some answers. I don't think I can get it in Canada, which is kind of unfortunate. But if anyone knows, please let me know. Some useless chit-chat before we get started in our document study. Here's something that's been really on my mind and in my heart for quite a few years, and it's just coming up again. So how do how do we build a community? How do we build a, a community of faith. And, and I, look, I look down south to, to, to North Dakota, which is not that different than here in Saskatchewan, I don't think. Oh, wait a minute. Hopefully I turned off the... Yeah, okay. Hey, I had to double check if I turned off the chant or not. Okay. It, it's not that different than here in Regina, I don't think, or I, we're in Moosja, but I mean in the Archdiocese of Regina or even Saskatchewan, you know, talking about North Dakota. And there, there is a flourishing of Catholic communities and people that are moving there on purpose in order to connect with, you know, Catholic communities. And how do we start something like that? I don't know. I've tried many different things. I've tried a lot of different things within my time at this parish and even in, in the Sastoon Diocese when I was in Kindersley. I've tried many different things, and, and there's nothing that seems to build upon, upon itself. And what I mean by that is, is that, so I've lived, in, and I'm many, many, it seems like almost a gazillion years separated from this, but at one time I did live in community, first with the Redemptorist priest and then with the Bazillion priest. And 
there is something very special about those times in my life. And, and in a sense, those communities build upon each other. And I know they have a structure of a religious order and everything else like this, but how do we get people motivated, just sort of people in the pews to spend time and energy to build something, to really dedicate themselves to something habitual, something, you know, regularly that would help their faith and build community? I've, I've suggested numerous of times about having what's what I call like a a supper club in a sense that you have a group of, let's say, five families and everyone is in charge of making a supper, you know, Monday to Friday and, the, you know, just to build those kinds of communities that way. Or, or even to just be committed to once a month of coming together and, and join in mass and prayer and talk and have just a space where something can be built. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's any how do we do that here? I'm really interested in anyone's input on this and leave them in the, the the notes here or in the chat or maybe when I open up the phone lines to phone in and your own sort of insights. I, I find it very difficult to have a group of people like to really commit to something on a regular basis. And I think really that's a part of community, right? Part of community is actually being in community, bringing, you know, and stuff like that. And I I don't think you can build that over the internet. Like, of course I'm doing this over the internet. And so it kind of seems counterintuitive, but I don't think you can, like, I think stuff on the internet can help in, in, in building and not, not help, but, but to connect people or whatever, but there needs to be like a physical, you know, part of that. And, and I'm just curious about people's inputs like this. I, I'm in a crossroads right now to, to do something different at the parish, to build some community. I've tried a bit of things that kind of fizzled out and stuff like this. So I, I've been doing something for the past, you know, it's close to over 11 years now, and I think it's run its course. So I'm open to some sort of ideas on that. My retreat Shras mission theme, I just want to tell people here, is that it is on fear and about the different types of fear that we encounter. Basically, the retreat is going to be about the bad kind of fear. There's three. Anyways, I won't give it all away, but there is obviously bad fear that's in our life. And both Mary and Joseph, when they encounter the angel in Mary's case, and in Joseph, when he's in the dream, the first thing they say is, do not be afraid. So how can we live that we are not afraid of all these things of the world. Also, too, if you're in the Mushja area and you'd like to play some board games, I am your guy. So, uh, yeah, I just put that out there. Hopefully one day someone will take me up on that. Our next meeting will be March 4th. Sorry about the two-week delay and everything else. Like last week, I was very, very sick. I'm still, you know, working towards, you know, kind of health and stuff like this. So if you hear me cough or sniffle or take some big, large gulps. I am sorry about that. So now we will get into the, now the useless chit-chat is over. We'll get into the dogmatic constitution of the church, the last part, the role of Mary. I think we can go through this quite quickly in a sense. And if there's any questions or anything else like that, please leave them in the chat down below. I look at those regularly and stuff like this. So I'm just trying to flip through my uh, book here to to where it is. So basically, this is an added chapter. So during Vatican II, there was some discussion to have freestanding document on Mary. 
Instead of that, what was decided is to put it at the end of the dogmatic constitution of the church. Now, like I said before, when we started the study, we can debate whether that was good, bad, otherwise, and stuff like this. But basically, our focus is just on the document itself. And I think this part of the dogmatic constitution of the church is very interesting. And it really, it's short, for one thing, and but it really summarizes the the belief of Mary, uh, of, for Catholics of Mary in the church and what's Mary's position of the church. So it's an added chapter, Mary's role as mother of God and mother of church, which is part of the pre- preface and not the complete doctrine of Mary. So not to take this as sort of a catechism on Mary or anything else like this, but definitely what the role of, of Mary in the church What's interesting, after a preface, we have the role, role of Blessed Virgin Mary. So Mary is the undoing of Eve's disobedience, and she's also freed from original sin. So Mary is the first fruits of our redeemed humanity. She is freed or shielded from original sin through the blood of the cross. And so that's, that is the Immaculate Conception. And it's kind of interesting, you know, there's the big joke about the, immacu- the doctrine of Immaculate Conception, it's like this, that people think that's that's a doctrine of, of Jesus, that Jesus was immaculately conceived, that's not the case at all. Unfortunately, I heard a gentleman who was going through seminary, and one of the men in seminary, you know, the first year thought that, and it's kind of interesting, this is the lacking of catechesis that, that way. But, but so we understand that Mary was shielded from original sin, not from her own doing, right? But it was a a true gift from Christ, from God, to shield her from original sin through the blood of the cross. Then the she had this motherly duty of Mary, this, this, and it's on page 90, number 60. I'm kind of going through this quite quickly because I realized this morning that if I was going through the same pace that I have been for these past seven meetings, we're not going to get through the documents of Vatican II until like 2026. So I apologize. I'm really wanting some input from the listeners out there. So the kind of what's, what's, what's of interest, if you want to ask me any questions or whatever, please leave that in the chats down below. So, so we look at page 90, paragraph 60. Yeah, so and we just talk about that that Mary is also our mother and that was a divine pleasure to be for for that to happen. The so Christ is one mediator, so this this reinforces the Catholic Church's teaching that there's only one mediator between us and God the Father, which is Jesus Christ. Mary is not the mediator of that, but it is Christ. And we look at Mary as the holiness, the mother um, model of the church. And this comes down, if you want to scroll or whatever, talking about what is holiness? How can we obtain holiness? What is the key of that that desire for all of us to have? And I think what the real push is that of humility. We look at Mary, who was just a person of humility. Are, Are we that humble? Are we willing to accept the gifts of Christ as that of gifts? And are we willing to soften our hearts to the world in such a way that we become a sign of contradiction, but also a sign of Christ's love? And what I mean by that is I think we sometimes get caught up in in this idea that we need to be, which it's true, we need to be loyal to the church, we need to know and love Jesus Christ's church, we need to know the truth, and we need to preach that truth. 
I think where sometimes we get into trouble is sometimes when we preach that truth, not out of love, but out of power or out of some sense of triumphalism that we have the truth and you don't and look at me and you're just, you know, kind of cast aside. I think this is not the model that Mary gives us of holiness, nor does the church tell us that. Yes, we need to know and love Jesus Christ in the church. We need to know the truth and act on that truth. And but yet we need to preach that in love, in this humility, in in our life. I think that it is always, you know, humbling that people of people that have no faith or very little faith or maybe antagonistic to the faith come up to us and say, "Wow, like I'm, you know, I never know, I never knew that believers, you know, did this or that or whatever." Like our life through our compassion and our understanding speak volumes. There's there's many times in my life where, you know, I happen to be someplace and they know that I'm from the church and they ask of my time, you know, they, and they're not believers or anything. Sometimes it's a very tough situation, maybe in a hospital or whatever. And they will tell me is that, oh, I never knew, you know, that a believer or a Catholic would do that, you know, pray with them or to give them counsel and stuff like this. That's the real humility of our faith, you know, to open up our house and homes to people that we don't necessarily like, you know, and and to kind of struggle with that a bit. And I think Mary shows us that model, this model of humility, and even to take even the sufferings of that come through this relationship with Christ as a gift from Christ. I think that's how Mary understood her role there and how the church understands her role in in, in the life of the church. One of the things that I find quite interesting is the idea of the devotion of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the church. And it says in the document that the liturgical cult should be cultivated. <laughs> I know that sounds like a double thing, but it should be encouraged. The faithful should be encouraged to have devotion to Our Lady. And this is sometimes contrary to what is sometimes being said by priests or even in parishes like this, where there is reluctance in a sense to have to celebrate uh, Marian feasts or to have Marian hymns in the mass and and it's it's good it's reassuring to understand that this is very much encouraged in the Vatican too and you know for me i always think of my mother god rest her soul who had a very strong devotion to our lady and would would in some ways be very emotional when there was hymns of mary or if there was a public devotion of mary that was at our parish where maybe that would be rosaries on friday or a marian non non eucharistic liturgy on wednesdays is like this my mom was very much drawn to that and i think we have to remember and this part of the document is very much you know i guess with one voice to say that true devotion to mary always leads us to Christ. You know, I always have this image of Mary taking my hand and leading my hand to touch the sacred heart of Jesus. That's the image I have of true devotion to Mary. And to be very honest, I, I need to cultivate that devotion more and more. I think the the holiness of my mother and the holiness of the people around me is what do they all have in common is this devotion to to Mary. Is true and good devotion. And so then it comes to the unity under Mary. So here again, we have a Vatican II sort of theme of unity between separated brothers and sisters. 
and they say Mary can be this bridge of unity, which which I think is is true to a point. A lot of the people that I know that are separated brother and sisters, like Protestants like this, have a very deep-seated, I don't know what it is, obstacle of Mary to understand Mary. I think for, it's not only Mary, actually, it's it's our understanding of the communion of saints that we can still have some sort of communication with people in heaven. Um, I think for a lot of separated brothers and sisters from people that are Protestant, they they really have a hard time understanding that. They have a real hard time knowing that we can communicate with people in heaven through through our prayers and like this. So I just don't think it's just Mary herself, although I think that might be an obstacle for a lot. I think it's this our understanding of communion of saints. Although in my experience working at a parish, there is many countless of people that have brought been brought into the church through Mary. I just have a gentleman who is seeking baptism where I think I've mentioned this before. If I've mentioned this before, just daydream for a bit. But this gentleman tried everything. You know, he, he tried all this Eastern sort of mysticism, you know, yoga, you name it, and everything else, and trying to get some peace in his life. He tried every everything and he told me he was going through a period of his life where it's all about stoicism and everything else and and here just recently about a year ago after he's struggling with this and he's struggling with a lot of anxiety and stuff like this his wife who is at this point not very like what is it like faithful is not the right word but not very active in the church says listen you know what i do is i pray the rosary and so he tries it once, he, he prays it very, he told me very skeptically, and he said something really profound happened, and he just had this hunger to know Christ through Mary, this, this, this hunger. And here's a man who, hum, who I'm humbled by, who is so on fire with the love of Jesus Christ is that he does, you know, catechism in a year in the morning, and the, in the evening he does the Bible in the year, he does his liturgy, the hours and stuff like this. He's, he's very much on fire. He has this first fervor and that first contact with Christ was through Mary. One of the things that's interesting about him too, he's, he's old ish and he's about my age and he comes from a very much of a no sort of faith background, right from his parents to his grandparents and everything else. So that's quite interesting to me. And there's more and more people like that. I think that that's a, a big outreach for the church to, to have is to, even, you know, we're talking about 50-somethings that have no contact with the, the Christian faith, really, or the Catholic faith, or any of the, the events of the Bible. He was very naive uh, about those things. So I think for a lot of us as believers, we just think that those everybody knows those stories. And if you're not in the church, you've willfully rejected them or something like this. And I, I don't think that's the case. So I'm just going to pause two seconds. My throat is a, get a little bit scratchy if you can't already find out and we'll just hop right on and we'll start with the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. Okay, sorry about that. I am open to anyone that would like to phone in. Everybody knows the phone number. It's 1-844-340-5001. And if you phone in, you can be part of this conversation. And if you do have any other questions, maybe you don't want to phone in, you can just go in our chat here and leave me a message or a question. So now we head out to the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. And I think the two central questions, and so first of all, it's kind of interesting. I was going through my old 
essays and stuff like this, all the stuff I did in my formation to be a permanent deacon. And I did write an essay about this document and it was, it was hot garbage. I, I think I write like English is my third language, which it's not. I'm very humbled by people who can articulate or the, use the written word very well. I, I'm just, I'm amazed actually. I'm also amazed that people want to hear me speak because sometimes I am not a good speaker of the English language either. But anyways, so this is the document, probably the the document that I'm most familiar with, this one and the one on liturgy. Those are the two documents of the Vatican II that I am most um, familiar with. So I encourage you to, if you are familiar, I mean, sorry, if you are if you want to know more about the dogmatic constitution of divine revelation, just go on the shared document. There is a link and in the Redeemer, also in the chat. I think in the chat, you have to copy and paste. You can't click on it for some unknown reason. I don't know, but just head on to the shared document. And on the bottom of this talk that we have on, it's right on the bottom, it says relevant links. It has some links to the divine, uh, the constitution of divine revelation. And it's quite good. Those are really good summaries and helps. And I did not include my uh, essay on divine revelation either. So consider yourself lucky. So in reading this, one of the the two central questions I think that we could ask and we can, and it is answered in the, in this document is two. And I think it's, it's a question, two questions that every believer has to grapple with. One is how is sacred scripture sacred? So what, like, obviously when we look at historically, there was many, many different scriptures out there. There's many different gospels and and writings from different different people. And I'm not even talking about the Gnostic writings that came quite a bit later than than what would be the gospels and the in the writings of Paul, right? That came quite a bit later and it was this manipulation. I don't even want to get into that. So we talk about like Barnabas and everything else like this, but there was a lot of writings that was happening at the time that the gospels were being written down and letters being sent back and forth by different Christian communities and stuff like this. So, but what, what makes sacred scripture sacred? Like what was the criteria? What, what was going on at the time? Right. And, and, and why, what, what, what makes it holy, right? Like, like we talk about the Bible being holy. Who, how do we know that? What, how do we know that this is true, right? What, what is the process there? And I think that's one thing. And connected question is, is then, then who has the authority to bring forth the Bible? Who, who has the authority to do that? Because we all know the Bible just didn't come out of thin air. It didn't come out of, you know, a lightning bolt. And we know that the writers of the Bible and so like this were not robots for God, right? God didn't whisper in their ear in a sense, and they just wrote verbatim what was going on, right? It is inspired. We know this. It is inspired. There's this uh, very mysterious connection in, in a sense, and I don't mean mysterious or uh, mystery like, like Sherlock Holmes or anything else like this, but there is, it's inspired. So this is God's word through man to us, Right. And, and we have to grapple, like, who has the authority to bring that forth then? And I think as Catholics, we, we kind of know those two answers already. We, we, know, we know, at least in our gut, how to answer those two questions. So we'll just carry on going through this document until about 8.30. And then 8.30, we'll maybe do some summaries like this, and then basically really 
ask if someone could phone in and, and help me out tonight. So in the first part of this revelation itself, we, we read in page 113, 113, that there will be no more divine revelation. Like, like the Bible is the Bible. There's going to be no books added or subtracted. This is, this is it. And this is something important. This is came from the Council of Trent because we know that there was some different books and stuff like this from the Protestant Bible to the Orthodox Bible and stuff like this. And this gets to the whole idea of authority, right? Who, who has the authority? Does just one person named Luther have the authority to mess around with the Bible? And, and so there will be no new revelation. And, and this is important. So we talk about no new public revelations like this that would be a revelation that would have to be authoritative to, to a Catholic, right, for a Bible. There is, there is private revelation. We, we know that. We have these encounters with Christ or whatever, but those don't make the, the mark of going into the Bible and stuff like this. We, we have to really under, understand that. And, and here's a beautiful, and number six says, through divine revelation, God chose to show forth and communicate himself and the eternal decisions of his will regarding the salvation of men. That is to say, he chose to share with them those divine treasures which totally transcend the understanding of the human mind. Beautiful. So it tells us that that there is cannot like the divine word the 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 revelation of god it cannot be contained in the human mind this is this is interesting in in the sense that we see a bishop right and they have the mitre right and it looks like kind of a rocket off his head and so like this but the mitre is which is worn on his head is the symbol of the bible so it is an open bible and that open bible is always bigger than the bishop's head Right? It always shows that. And when a bishop is consecrated, he has the open Bible over his head to show that, you know, historically the bishop was the keeper of the stories, right? Keeper of the Bible, keeper of the events, the true events of Jesus Christ. That's why the written Bible didn't come until later on, right? It was an Christianity was an oral faith in a sense that the bishop was the keeper of those oral stories. And the reason why it was written down is that because it expanded so fast is that they needed a, you know, they needed a way to preserve the, the gospel events and, and stuff like this. So they need to somehow to do it. So they needed to write it down. And the two, the, the two ribbons that come out of the hat there, the mitre hat is symbolizing of the old and the new Testament with a single, like with a single spot, right? Like it's not two separate ribbons, but it, it has a beginning, a, a, the same beginning with two of the ribbons, which is a beautiful symbolism within our faith. And and so it talks about that it has, it transcends the understanding of the human mind. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, we can't understand God's word, right? In in a way, we, we can. We can understand it in a, in a very... I guess small way in a sense, or in a in a, in a reflection sort of understanding, but we can't completely understand the mind of God. And for instance, the reason for that is we are finite beings, and God is eternal, right? And so that's that's how we get to that spot. Now it is eight thirty, so I am going to ask if there's anyone out there that would like to 
you know, phone up and talk here about any of the subjects that we've talked about already today. I've been going through this quite quickly and stuff like that. So is there any things that we that you would like more clarification or something to talk about? Phone in, please. Or we can just have dead air today. Just kind of too bad, but might happen. So our phone number is one 340 I can carry on then on this document. Yeah. So so we have that. We have the revelation of then the transmission of divine revelation. Now, the, this part of the document, I actually cut and paste quite a bit of this, this part because it's quite beautiful, I think. And, and you can read it in the, in the shared document here about our meeting. And w- w- so here's number seven. The commission of, was faithfully fulfilled by the apostles who, by their oral preaching, by example, and by observances, handed on what they had received from the lips of Christ from, from living with him and from what he did or what they had learned through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so one of the things that is quite important about how we receive the Bible and and sacred scripture is this, is that we would look back. So the disciple, sorry, the the councils, the early councils that started forming the canon of the Bible would would bring about sort of a book, right? Let's say, I don't know, the Gospel of Luke. And there was two things they looked for. First of all, they looked for universality. So was the gospel of Luke used in the known, like would be accepted by the known Christian communities of the time? And that's how come some of these early councils took so long because they would say, okay, is the gospel of Luke, is is that a gospel? You know, the, so they'd go back to their communities and say, oh, is it used? Now the universality and another one is, was it used in liturgy? So this is where we get the the liturgical part of of sacred scripture is that not only was it universally accepted as sacred scripture but the next thing was was it used liturgically another interesting um, historical note is one of the first liturgical documents that we've unearthed is that of the blessed virgin mary so the cult of the blessed virgin mary and i want to use that as a not a derogatory term but a term of devotion right the the devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary is very ancient, and and you know our earliest archaeological digs and even our earliest writings we know of of the early Christians were that of Mary. So so liturgically, that's why. Okay, as a Catholic, the the proper place of sacred scripture is that of liturgy. Is that. When we come together in mass or any other liturgical action is the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of sacred scripture is what makes it like makes it uh, current, like in a sense of makes it present, sorry, makes it present to the community. That's how come that's how all of our gospels and and letters and stuff like this were all oral, right? It was all it wasn't written and then and then proclaimed although we can say that maybe for the letters of Paul and stuff like this but even those letters that were written then proclaimed Paul understood that those would be proclaimed to the community it wasn't it wasn't just written like a pen pal back and forth that it would be proclaimed to the community right but definitely the gospels were first orally tra- 
orally like transferred, right? Orally given. And, and the height of that would, would be at mass. So there's this very key connection between sacred scripture and liturgical worship that sometimes we miss because a lot of times, you know, we see, and you know, I'm a deacon, I proclaim the gospel, and there's all these people reading it from the missal. And now, maybe sometimes it's because that I, sometimes I stumble around words and stuff like this, fine. But but I think that the proper connection we should have with sacred scripture to Mass is that if we are interested in those readings, we should prepare ourselves before Mass, and then we need to be present to the sacred scripture during Mass. We need to soften our heart. We need to be ready for that encounter of God through his sacred scripture. And because sacred scripture is a love letter of God to us, and it and it personally, you know, it is personalized in a sense, right? We we all, when we enter into sacred scripture, especially at, at Mass and at, you know, Eucharistic celebrations, we we hear our, our own stories in those stories. We, this is the way that we are divinized, right? That we become one with Christ, not like, and that complete comes through the reception of the Eucharist, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. But part of that journey is that of sacred scripture. And so I'm always tell people that, you know, no one brings a book to a movie, right? And I think that sometimes that that's what we use the missile for. It's unfortunate. And and I think that it is good if we were just learning the mass or if we are, maybe English is our second language or something like this. I think that is okay. Or if we're all elderly and so like that, like I think those, those things, but I think generally, you know, our missile should be used before mass to, to know what's going to be proclaimed and to be truly present there. And so this is, you know, this is coming from the transmission. So how was it, you know, trans transmitted between the church and stuff like this and how we come to have sacred scripture. It's interesting that here we, they make this sort of distinction, but not so much is that therefore both sacred scripture, sacred tradition and sacred scripture are be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. So we, to look, look at a sacred tradition is that of of what was kind of handed down by the apostles, right? What was given to us as a form of church is sort of oral uh, tradition. And I think that is very important because through that oral tradition gives a birth to sacred scripture, right? So they're, in a sense, yes, they are different, but also one in the same. One gives birth to the other. So sacred tradition gives birth to sacred scripture, and because that because that adds to our other questions of about you know who has the authority to bring forth the bible what's interesting we'll we'll go to the the next part of it is that in divine inspiration and interpretation of sacred scripture they talks about both the new and the old testaments are the word of god the need need for interpretation but who who can interpret the the bible right so this is my last point, and then I'll wait again for any any questions or any phone-ins or anything else like that. So this is this is important because we have, you know, let's say it's St. Joe's here at Mushta. We have, you know, let's let's say, you know, hundreds of families, people, you know, we have 200 people coming to Mass and stuff like this. And we have all these people with different life experiences, different, you know, intelligence and everything else like that. 
and they all have different interpretations of the Bible. And and there isn't there's a misnomer to think that there is a sort of uh, an official Catholic interpretation from every verse of the Bible. That is not the case. The case is the Catholic Church brings forth the interpretive key or the interpretive tools to interpret the Bible properly. That's it. There, there is a few Bible verses that have sort of a Catholic interpretation, a, a rigid one. That would be like, this is my body. These A lot of it has to revolve around the Eucharist, and a lot of it has to revolve around um, the miracles. So as Catholics, we believe that all the miracles are are true and are the in the sacred scripture show actual events. So all this tomfoolery about like the the multiplication of loaves and fishes, you know, we've all heard the tomfoolery about certain people talking about, well, that's just a parable or a miracle of generosity. No, Jesus actually multiplied the loaves and the fishes. Like, please. So there is a few things like this, but but what the church does is give us a way to interpret the Bible. So that's that's very important. And 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 yes, we could say that that's an improper interpretation. We can look at the catechism or other biblical documents from the church and say, oh yeah, by the way, that would be an improper way of of interpreting the Bible. So what what's some of the tools that we can have to interpret the Bible properly? Well, first of all is like what I like to do is look to the church fathers, look to the early church to see how they interpret it. Now, sometimes that is not a completeness, or sometimes they were wrong too. Origin, for instance, had some misinterpretations of of the Bible. A lot of sort of like around the Middle Ages and and before that, there was lots of interpretation of Scripture that would be verging on like numerology and stuff like this, and and kind of looking for meaning and stuff like this in very interesting ways. But I think overall that gives us a good foundation. You know, we look at Saint Thomas, Saint. St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, St. Bonaventure, those those people, those saints there give us a good foundation of how to interpret that, right? Because they come from the church like this. Also, too, is I think our, there's lots of current helps, too, for instance, like the catechism and, and also like church documents like this one. So those are the—because the Bible is, is, is in one way easy, right? It's a love letter to us. In some ways— kind of difficult. I always am reminded, and this is my last little story, and then we can end today, unless there is some questions everyone want to phone in, is that a lot of times I go through my stuff, right? Like I I like to hoard a lot of stuff, believe it or not. And so every once in a while, usually in the spring, I I like to go through my stuff and I have a box of all the stuff that my mom wrote me. My mom wrote a lot of letters to me and stuff like this. In some ways, those letters are easy, right? I can understand what she's saying. It's like this because I can remember the context or I can remember what she's talking about. Sometimes I open it up and I have no clue. I am confused even. Does that mean my mom loved me any less? No, it, it just means that I I don't have complete knowledge of what's going on. I don't know what my mom's saying and stuff like this. I think that's a lot to do with sacred scripture in a more profound sense, right? Is that God's love letter to us it's it's always a love letter. It is our, and sometimes it's easy, right? Easy to interpret, easy to understand. Sometimes it is not. And it's our, I guess, our job as faithful Catholics to unpack those difficult passages. And that's why community is so important. That's why the church is so important to help us on that journey. 
So I see no real questions or anything else like that in the chat. And if anybody would like to give me a call, they're more than happy to do so. Or we can stop a little bit earlier today. That would also be okay with me. My throat is getting a little bit dry. I really thank everyone who came and listened to this. It was a little bit rambly, I have to admit. There was you know not very much feedback in the in the in the chat there i wonder if the chat is up and running i'm pretty sure it is maybe everyone is you know maybe also under the weather so i appreciate then that added sacrifice to come and listen to me on a monday night our next meeting will be next monday which we will probably finish up divine uh, the constitution of the divine scripture there and our next document after that will be, oh, I think it's Sacred Liturgy. Yeah, Constitution on Sacred Liturgy. Sweet. So that's that's pretty awesome. That will probably take a little bit of time on that. I think everyone has some opinions on that. Okay. So thank you very much again. And yeah. So the Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in the peace of Christ. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you very much. And like I said, I'm very appreciative. I'm very humbled of all the people that have listened to this and are continuing to listen to this. And hopefully you get something out of it. If you would like to ask me some questions, please email me. Please get a hold of me. You know, if you're maybe embarrassed to phone in or even to leave something in the chat, please email me. I really appreciate that. Or, you know, phone me up and leave a message on my phone. Till next time, God bless. Have a great day and keep it crispy, my little tater tots. Bye.